I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much i realize what i'm about to say come as a great shock however using great presence of mind I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Robert Moss. He's the creator of Active Dreaming, a synthesis of modern psychology and shamanism. He's a prolific writer and leads workshops on dreaming, creativity, and shamanism all over the world. And his latest book that we'll be talking about is Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desires Through 12 Secrets of the Imagination. Now, to begin with, 
I've been playing with dreams and liminal space for many years, and I found this book to be just an absolutely delicious read. You're a gentleman of great taste and discernment, anyhow. <laughs> I'm glad, by the way, that you said dream and liminal states, because one of the key points about dreaming is that dreaming is not just about what happens during sleep. I mean, we can have amazing revelations in our spontaneous sleep dreams, whether we like them or not. Dreams are always showing us more than we already know, and sometimes they're holding up a magic mirror for waking actions and attitudes. It can be a corrective, a course corrective. However, liminal states, particularly the state between sleep and awake, I mean, that delicious liminal state when you're drifting in between, this is a very creative state of consciousness. And by spending more time in that state, you know, hypnagogia, the threshold state between sleep and awake, all sorts of things become possible. Creative breakthroughs become possible. Spontaneous images arrive. You're doing a kind of horizontal meditation, looking at the secret contents of your mind. You have a launch pad for lucid dreaming, and you're in a highly psychic and intuitive state. So inner communication, in a worthwhile way, becomes easily accessible. So as you noticed, one of the chapters of my new book is about the treasures of the twilight zone, meaning this liminal state. So I'm greatly in favor of you know this in-between threshold state of consciousness. Probably most people are not familiar with that liminal space, that hypnagogic space, and... I've done dream journals and much longer times of not doing dream journals. And more recently, after years of doing formal meditation practice, I do primarily horizontal meditation. Yes. Thank you for using the phrase. I mean, my serious meditative friends who think you have to sit on a cushion in a certain posture are sometimes shocked when I use that phrase, horizontal meditation. But it is, in fact, the easy everyday or every night way to get into a very creative state of consciousness. It's even the state in which it is easiest to establish and maintain the continuity of consciousness that some dream yogis swear by. I mean, you retain some degree of consciousness in every state of sleep, awake, or in between. You develop maybe multi-level consciousness, so you can be in the dream and aware of your body in the bed, and maybe in more than one locale in dreaming or meditation at the same time. So this state is very propitious, and if people are not familiar with it, well, it's partly because very little has been written that is generally accessible on the hypnagogic or hypnopompic state. Hypnagogic is a word that is used for a liminal state approaching sleep or in the middle of the night, hypnopompic when you're coming out of it. Twilight Zone, the liminal state, will do for all of this. I've been working in this state, playing in this state all my life, and sometimes I'm content just lying in bed at some funny hour, often after I've woken up from a third cycle of sleep and I'm in between. I'm sometimes just content to let images rise and fall and see what happens, and sometimes it comes in a way that many people are actually familiar with but haven't necessarily valued. You see patterns of light, patterns of texture, a parade of faces, you wonder who they are, can they see you or not? And then perhaps if you stay with it without trying to control it, a landscape forms, an encounter begins to take place, and then maybe you're off in lucid dreaming. But that is a very easy entry into the liminal state of hypnagogy. It's available to just about anyone. I will say to people, you know, look, it's waiting for you. Okay, but maybe when you wake up, you don't have any or much dream recall, but you're probably going to be waking up at some point during the night, most people do, you may need to go to the bathroom. Well, 
see whether before or after you go to the bathroom, whether you can just give yourself a little bit of lazy, relaxed time lying on your back or your side in bed and seeing what is with you. Maybe a dream that you forgot will come back. Maybe fresh images will arise. And you are now beginning to make yourself at home in a fantastic creative playground of consciousness. When I wrote my book, The Secret History of Dreaming, I looked at the history of creativity in many fields, including science and technology. One of the discoveries I made is not only that dreams have been more important in the history of science than most people understand, but that the hypnagogic state, the liminal state, has been even more important. It's been like the solution state in breakthroughs that have produced Nobel Prizes and so on. The discovery of the benzene ring is a famous one. The fellow's dozing in a chair in the liminal state in a rainy night in Brussels, and suddenly he sees the pattern of the Ouroboros, the snake biting its tail, and he understands the pattern of the benzene ring. So it's waiting for everybody. This is the fantastic thing about, you know, these states of dream and liminal experience, Tony. They are accessible to everyone. How good you get at playing with them has something to do with your willingness to make some minimal commitment to giving yourself more time in these states. And if you're going to get really good at it, coming back to something you were saying a moment ago, you need to keep a journal. There is no alternative. You've got to keep a journal. You might say to yourself, I'm not going to forget this. It was big. Well, you'll blur the details, and then there are all those things that might not seem to be big but are really worth gathering and assembling and looking at over time. I've been keeping a journal with great discipline for 35 years and on and off since I was a teenager. And when you put this stuff on a digital database, you know, like Word, you have a search engine, you can pull up all your experiences and dreams relating to a certain theme, black dog or, you know, Scandinavia or whatever, and it comes out and you see sometimes the continuity in your dreaming, and that can take you into a different understanding of reality itself. One of the things I write about in the new book, which is central to my own teaching and practice, is that one of the things that we learn from dreaming and will give us first-hand evidence to confirm this possibility is that we are indeed living right now in one of many parallel worlds. This is a popular hypothesis in physics. As you know, it's the many worlds theory, the idea that we are living in uncountable parallel worlds. So how would we know that in human terms? And how would we value it? What would it mean to us? The idea that in a different world, you and I, Tony, are not talking right now. And in a world a bit further away, I never became a dream teacher, and you never had a radio show. A little world further away, we're living in different places, blah, blah, blah. And this is what science tells us, physics tells us, is more likely than not. But what does it mean? Well, in dreams, if you journal them over time, you'll probably notice that you return again and again to a scene which is not your regular life, where things are evolving and going along as if you're living a whole life there, maybe with a different partner, maybe doing a different job, maybe in a different country, maybe in a different world, maybe in a different time. This becomes really quite fascinating. First of all, you're watching a sort of series of episodes of a life, a dramatic life which is yours, but not the one you're leading here, which can be interesting in its own right. And then you start thinking, well, wait a minute, gosh, am I checking in with my parallel self who made a certain life choice different than the one that I made on my main event track? Is this how things are working out? How do I feel about it? Am I neutral about it? Do I have regrets? Do I say, thank goodness I didn't follow that path? And then you rise to the understanding that maybe... If you're doing something different in another life right now, where you have gifts and connections you don't have right now, 
you can borrow from that alliance and you can mutually support that other self. And this is one of the fantastically interesting things that become acceptable through dreaming and dreamers are going to be the true scientists in providing experiential evidence, experiential evidence of the many worlds hypothesis, experiential evidence of the observer effect which quantum physics gave us, the idea that things only come into manifestations when you look at them, they're in a soup of quantum possibilities until that moment. And out of all this comes a sort of vigorous approach to life, I would say, a creative approach, the willingness to understand and act upon the idea that we can, to some extent, this was sort of trivialized by the New Age, but we can, to some extent, participate in the creation of our reality. That's one of the things that you learn through dreaming the way that I like to teach and practice it. I find all this utterly fascinating in the book, you say we live at the center of a multi-dimensional universe. And I love the notion of being able to access parallel lives and being able to perhaps learn from them or, or gain something from them. Is there a way to intentionally explore that? Well, yes, there is. I mean, I'm greatly in favor of taking the leads and borrowing the portals for this kind of experience from the dreams that come to us spontaneously in sleep or in that liminal state and maybe sometimes by the messages that synchronicity gives us in the world around us. Because let's remember there's horizontal meditation and then, then there's walking meditation. The world around you speaks to you in the language of signs and symbols if you pay attention. So dreaming is also about being alert to the patterns that reveal themselves in the everyday world around you. Everything is speaking, everything is talking. The Aborigines of my native Australia say, you know, we live in the speaking land, everything's speaking. We'll just spend a moment paying more attention. So how do you learn more about all of this intentionally? Well, you learn to journey. I mean, that would be the shamanic term for it. You might be journeying with the drum. I use live drumming in my workshops. I don't use it all that much at home. At home, I mostly just focus on something, an intention and an image that has some juice for me and let myself go with it. But a core technique of my approach, which I call active dreaming, is a technique that we call dream reentry. Now, the idea is this. You have a dream or a dream has had you. You have an image. It might have come in sleep. It might have come in that liminal state. It might have come from memory. You have an image that you'd like to explore. It's got some intrigue for you. You're in that place. You know, you're on that Viking longboat or you're or in that other life with a different partner, a different family, and you're curious, you'd like to know more, or you're talking to grandma who is deceased but is very much alive in your dream, you'd like to see what she's got to say. Or there's a bear and it scares you, but you'd like to see why the bear has come to you. So you've got something that has some energy induced for you from a dream or an image that belongs to you, well, you can do this. You can take that dream or image and you could make it your doorway, your portal for journey in consciousness. As I say in my workshops, we use shamanic drumming to power and focus the journey at home, like many other people. I can often manage to do this without any assists, without any prompts, without any music, just by intention, focusing on the image and willing myself to go there. The idea is this. If you've been in a dream, you've been in a place. Dreams are rarely played out on the fuzzy, cotton, woolly cloud nine. Normally in a dream, you're in a beach, you're in a hotel, you're in a plane, you're somewhere, you're in a city, you're in a house. 
So think about that. You've been in a house, you've been in a city in ordinary life, you could go there again probably. You found your way there once, you could go there again. It's the same with a dream or an image that has some life for you. If you're interested and you've been there, you can go again. It may not be in this reality, or it might be in a version of this reality at a distance from you in time or space. You can make your intention to go again and to explore. So let's say, for example, staying with the parallel lives or other lives, multidimensional universe theme, let's say that again and again you find yourself in Denmark. I've been in Denmark a lot recently in dreams and either in a Copenhagen, to sort of alternate reality version of Copenhagen, or way back in Iron Age Viking times. What's going on? Why is Robert in his spontaneous sleep dreams in Scandinavia, particularly in Denmark, so often? I could make it my intention to go back to that strange shop on that street corner in Copenhagen and talk to that woman who's showing me objects that seem to be magical and get her to explain to me what's going on. I can put up myself back in that scene where I'm in a Viking longboat going up a fjord with the sun glinting on the ice, and I can let the action go forward. Maybe I can talk to someone inside the now conscious dream. The conscious dream, I'm wide awake, I'm journeying. Maybe I can look at more at who I am in this scene. Am I Robert, or am I Harold, or some Hafdan, or someone from long ago? So this is one of the ways with intentionality of learning more. You have a portal, you have an, you have an image that has some juice and energy for you. You'd like to explore it. Then you learn the technique of relaxing your body and screening out the normal clutter of distractions and self-defeating thoughts. And you focus it on your intention. I'd like to go to that corner in Copenhagen. I'd like to talk to that girl in the shop. This is my intention. I'd like to understand what she's showing me with these toys that seem to be more than toys. They seem to be like magical power objects. I'd like to do that. I'm going to make it my intention to put myself back into the scene. I'm going to let the scene grow strong on my inner screen, and I'm going to go into it. And this is one of the ways of approaching this with intentionality. And as I keep saying, the best invitation to this kind of adventure is one that has come to you spontaneously in your dreams and through liminal images. I can suggest all sorts of scripts for journeys that you can follow, and many of them in the book I offer scripts for journeys to places of healing and guidance and adventure in what I call the imaginal realm, following the work of Henri Corbin on medieval Sufi mysticism, the realm of true imagination. You can visit fantastic places. You can develop a whole geography of a world beyond the physical where there are real schools and temples and palaces and places of rest and regeneration. You can go there, and, and my book actually offers some portals for that, so you can borrow those. Those portals typically, in my book and my work, come from direct experience. Most typically, they come from dreams and visions I've experienced myself and learned to spread like a tent of vision that others can enter and experience things inside without being controlled or confined to my imagination or to anything else that is hand-me-down stuff. They're going to have their own authentic experiences. But sometimes it's helpful to have some kind of root map, some kind of established architecture to get you started. So these are some of the ways. So what is the role of the drumming in this? Well, drumming shepherds the brain waves, and that's a nice way of thinking about it. We can talk about hertz and all that kind of stuff. But let's just say that 
Drumming shepherds the brain waves in a certain direction, helps to screen out the clutter, helps to get your focus where it needs to go. It's a sheepdog. The drumming, I like dogs. The drumming for me is a sheepdog. It shepherds the brain waves and screens out distraction. I like live drumming. Even now that we're in this online universe, my workshops and trainings are by Zoom these days. By the way, there's a new one starting on Thursday for the Shift Network, Dream Journeys Beyond the Veil. I'm doing live drumming in all my online workshops now, and the acoustics actually are amazingly good because if it's live drumming, then I, if I'm doing the drumming, can tune in to the energy of the group, the needs of the group, to the you know what's going on, What's going on with the drumming? Let me tell you an anecdote about that. The first time I taught a shamanic dream workshop in Brazil many years ago, we had a lot of people in a hotel on a wild Atlantic beach, and we had Santa Catarina Island. We had three professional Brazilian musicians in the group, and Brazilian knows about music, right? Brazil knows about rhythm. So the three professional musicians come up to me during the break, and I'm nervous because they want to know about my drumming. Can we look at your drum? I said, well, you can look. You won't be interested. This is my little synthetic travel drum, which is low maintenance and nothing special. My beaters have got a deer skin head, but, you know, nothing much going on there. I said, well, what about your technique? I said, I've got no technique. Well, they say, but you're producing effects. You're producing rhythms. You're producing tonal effects. We love, but we don't understand. I mean, how do you do it? I said, oh, I drum with the spirit. I feel the energy of the room. I feel the spirit. Oh, the spirits. Now we get it. Now we understand. So that's another thing. I mean, in shamanic societies, the drumming is not just to sort of control the brainwaves or influence the brainwaves. It's to celebrate and set up a union or a reunion with spiritual energies. And, you know, whatever our language of understanding for these things, something on that deeper level goes on. When people hear my drumming, sometimes they hear a whole primal orchestra as if different instruments known to our distant ancestors are playing at the same time. And when they hear that, when they feel that, it means perhaps that the ancestors are present. This is something else you learn. When you take even a very halfway shamanic path, you learn that the ancestors are looking for us. The ancestors are calling. Ancestors of our bloodline, ancestors of the land where we live or visit, ancestors of our spiritual lineages, which might be many, because you know what? Fortunately, we're not confined to our genealogy. We're not confined to where we live, that we should pay attention to the spirits of the land. We are connected in the multidimensional universe with many traditions, many cultures, many different peoples. And this might be part of our identity. So to reach the point in a life where you can bring more of this together, you can say, okay, I want to connect with that African ancestor. I want to connect with the Native American ancestors, the Umpwe Hunwe, the real people of the land where I live. I want to connect with my Celtic and Scandinavian ancestors. I want to listen to the Taoist sages who are calling to me. I want to listen to those voices in Farsi that are calling to me from the heart of Persian mysticism in the Middle Ages. I want to listen to all these voices and work them together and see if I can make a happy family out of my ancestral connection. That also becomes possible. And once again, the invitation comes more than any other way through dreaming. Jung said in his last major writing, which is in the book Man and His Symbols, it's Jung's long essay on Man and His Symbols. He didn't want to write it because it was one of the more accessible pieces that he wrote. But a dream told him he had to bring this to more people. In his last major writing, Jung said, 
speaking as a disenchanted clergyman's son, it is a well-known fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions, that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. So when we talk about spiritual traditions, traditions of our ancestors, there's Jung saying what I'm saying to you. Look to your dreams and visions. This is how you will find, I think, what your authentic identity in the larger reality looks like. You say the essence of the world is that we make it all up on a continual basis and that it's a matter of how we do that, whether we do it by you know, unconscious past default or by creative imagineering. Now, in our culture, we give short shrift to the imagination and imaginal realms if we even acknowledge them at all. I particularly love that notion that we make it all up. And growing up, I always had a sense that anything was possible, despite the constraints of the world around me. I would love for you to talk more about that notion of the essence of the world being that we continually make it up. Well, let me start with the dream story, with the dream that gave me the opening of this book, and let me put it in context. I mean, pre-pandemic, I traveled literally half the time. I mean, it's on the road half the days of the year. I'd make seven or eight trips to Europe, complicated trips, starting from a small airport in upstate New York, trips everywhere else. Then by the end of last year, after a year of, you know, leading 42 to 6 days workshops and trainings and many online courses, I was exhausted and I was committed to writing this book. So I asked for a dream to help me write the book. We're talking about holiday season, late December. And I dreamed that I'm giving a lecture on Viktor Frankl, who, whose book you know, Man's Search for Meaning. Many of us know it's a very important book in the history of consciousness, very important book in relation to your question. I'm giving a lecture on Viktor Frankl. I'm plucking out his ideas and presenting them again, and I wake up thinking, well, that's interesting, but I've already written about Viktor Frankl. He's well-known. He's very important. Is this really how I should approach my new book? Well, I sat down without thinking about it any further, and I wrote the first pages of the introduction, which, as you know, give a, a fresh version of how Viktor Frankl survived Auschwitz and other Nazi death camps by making it up by producing dreams and imagination in which he saw himself impossibly as a free man in a good suit speaking in a nice auditorium after the war with Hitler's just a memory. Not only that, but he's giving a lecture like an academic at some distance from the subject on the psychology of the death camps. He's doing this in his imagination. He's making it up in his imagination while he's basically a walking skeleton with a tattoo on its arm who can be beaten or killed at any moment. I mean, crazy, crazy. Well, he survived the death camps. One year after the war, one year after the demise of Hitler and the end of the war, he gave that lecture in that suit, in that auditorium, on the psychology of the concentration camps. It's a fantastic example of how by making inner movies and putting our trust in them, we can help to bring things about. At the very least, he guaranteed his own survival when so many of his friends died. And I thought, I know I'm getting shivers as I say this to you, I thought, I know why I was told in my dream, myself presenting this again, because there's a lesson for all of us, and it's this. However dire the circumstances seem to be, however bad the world seems to be, however crazy and corrupt those in power seem to be, however oppressed we might feel by everything, 
Remember Viktor Frankl. He's in a Nazi death camp. You know, some people in this world are in equally horrible situations, but most of us, probably nobody listening to this show, is in a situation as bad as that. So we can say to ourselves, oh, wait a minute, let me pause. However bad I think things are, however obdurate certain terrible things in society might seem to be, if he could make it through the Nazi death camps by making it up, by making up an inner movie that became real, maybe I can try something similar. So, you know, this, this was the thesis. So this is why I didn't really have to rewrite my book very much, which basically completed before we accepted the reality of the pandemic in all the rational minds on the planet. I didn't have to change that much because it starts out on that theme. And the problem is, you know, in life, of course, we bump up against the bubbles of collective imagination. We bump up against bubbles of fake or artificial reality, which some people are content to spend their time, to spend their lives. And what do you do about that? How do you push a hole in that? Well, that's not so straightforward. But for each of us, one by one, individual basins, family, small community, we can do a lot more to compose and create the reality we inhabit. Basically, whatever we experience in the world around us is to some extent a projection of our consciousness, a function of our imagination or lack thereof. I mean, a perception is related to imagination. We perceive what we can believe and what we can best our belief in. I mean, this is why some of the islanders couldn't see Captain Cook's ship when it arrived with it in full sail because they didn't believe in ships like that, so they didn't see it. So growing perception and imagination is the heart of the matter. And, uh, you know, I offer many games to play in that court. I'm curious about these games. Can you share one in particular as an example? All right, let me give you, because you like the liminal state we talked about, let me give you a terribly easy game to play any night that you are not so completely exhausted or so frustrated you're awake in the middle of the night that you're not going to do anything. Let's say you are in a drifty state. You can do it right now. You can put yourself there right now. And we're going to build a scene using your memory as well as your imagination. Think right now about a theater a movie house, concert hall, something like that, which you have enjoyed in your life. It might be the place where you watched the Saturday matinee as a kid. It might be the cinema you haven't been for a while because of these lockdown times. It might be a concert hall, somewhere like that, a place where you've enjoyed the performance, enjoyed the movie. Let's call this your dream cinema. So you're picturing yourself approaching the entrance to the place that you remember. It might be a hybrid. It might be a composite already. It might be composed of elements of different theaters and cinemas. And you go through the doors, and there is a ticket booth. There's usually a ticket booth, right? There's some ticket booth. Can you imagine that? Can you look? might look like the scene that you remember. It will evolve a bit. But the person at your ticket booth is going to ask you, first of all, to put something down. Imagine that. You're carrying something they don't want in the cinema because you can't carry certain things with you if you're going to get to the good stuff. You know, old memories, self-limiting beliefs, old baggage. You might be surprised to be asked to put down that bag, put down that laptop, put down that rusty weapon, down that memory. Now you're going to be asked to pay the price of entry. And the price of entry is you will say something like, I'm here for the story I need to know now, or I'm here for the dream. 
I need playing right now. Here's my dream movie, the one that I need right now. Well, let's assume that you are accepted and the person at the ticket counter might be very interesting, might be worth taking a look at that person, might be a person who will appear to you again, could take the form of a deity, could take any form, you know, it could be pink Ganesha, the feminine Ganesha, who knows. So now you're being ushered into a viewing room, which seems to be just for you, very comfortable, you can have snacks if you like. And there's a screen, maybe curtains go back, maybe the screen does come to life and you have an impression of images, flashes of trailers, like bits of commercials, rather like those things that rise and fall in the hypnagogic state. And now things begin to stabilize a bit and you have a glimpse of the feature film or the presentation or the play or the performance or the opera, whatever it's going to be. And you're now interested and excited, you may or may not see or hear the name of the performance or the movie, but it's for you, and you're watching it, and you're a spectator, and as things begin to deepen on the screen or on the stage, you suddenly realize, oh, this is a dream cinema. I can remain an observer if I like and enjoy the show as best I'm able to take it in, or I can go up on stage, I can step through the screen, I can become part of the performance. I can become the star, I can become the scriptwriter, I can become the director. And then, you know, you do this for a while, things happen, and, and if you are able to stay with it and the things are happening in an interesting way, you're going to come back and you're going to record them. And as you leave the scene, you're going to take a look around and you're going to notice posters, announcements of coming attractions, other information you can bring back with you, and you're going to record something. So this is your invitation to what to you might be a first conscious visit, first willed intentional visit, to a place I sometimes call the cinema of lost and found dreams, or simply the dream cinema, a place where you can consciously access what might be a dream that was looking for you but you missed because you didn't remember it, or it might be a dream that you've never had because it's being produced to you now. It's a place where you might become aware that behind the curtain of the world you have a whole dream production crew, a whole film crew that is willing and available to make productions for you with, with whom you can collaborate more consciously and that in that process you might be growing scenarios for life, scenarios of the life you would like to live, scenarios of things that you can manifest. This might be a place where you can not only be entertained, or reminded of things like dreams that went missing, that you can become part of the conscious construction, the conscious design of things that on a deep level you would like to have manifest in your life and the life of others. So that's a very simple invitation. It's an amazingly simple portal. Anybody can do the first part by calling up the memory of the theater or cinema, how far you go the next part depends on your ability to relax, maintain a state of relaxed attention and go with it. And to do that, you might need more than a few minutes of me talking to you on a radio show. You might need to get back in that easy chair or lie flat on the floor or lie back in bed. I'll use some drumming or use some music that appeals to you and take it away and let it go on for as long as it needs to go on. So that's a sample of a very easy way of inviting people to enter and establish and grow strong a kind of imaginal space, in other words, a space in the realm of true imagination, 
where they can go again and again. And think of the benefits, the virtues of all of this in these current times, Tonio. You're learning, again, that you can travel without leaving home. You do that in dreams. You can do it in this kind of horizontal meditation. And you can have adventures, and you can be as social as you like. And in the course of all that, you might find, you might just find that you're growing a vision of life possibility. And that if you can grow that vision with sufficient conviction, sufficient feeling, if it begins to inhabit all of your inner senses, you might find that there is a good chance that it will take root in your world. You say that dreams can help us read the secret wishes of the soul and also to take action to honor them. And you also say that our big story is hunting us. Talk about those things and how they're related, if, if those are... All right, well, the they same. are sort of related, and they both come out of indigenous wisdom. Dreams are secret wishes of the soul. Well, this was made clear to me in the late 1980s when I moved to a farm in upstate New York because of a call of a red-tailed hawk under a white oak tree. And I started dreaming a language I did not know. It turned out to be an archaic form of the Mohawk Indian language, the language of the Kanyankahaka. That's the Mohawk name for themselves, the people of the stone, laced with some Wendat Huron words. So it took a bit of time, even when I started writing these things down phonetically, even when I found native speakers, to break down the meaning of the words. And they were not translated. It was one of those New Age bubble dreams where you know everything at once. No, I had to do work. I had to enter an ancient tradition, study its language, its history, with native speakers, do the work of a historian, reading all the documents. So... I discovered, to my certain knowledge, that the person who was speaking to me and had called me in the state of lucid dreaming one night was a woman of power, an Arundiwano, who became mother of the wolf clan of the Mohawk people back in the early 1700s. She has a historic identity. I found documents relating to her. I found lineal descendants of her, and I was called to this perhaps because I have an ancestral connection with an Irishman who knew her in their time in the 18th century. Anyway, without going through that long story, which is interesting to me, and which I wrote about in detail in other books, like The Boy Who Died and Came Back, I learned from her because she gave me a word that no one could translate. I eventually found it in the reports of the Jesuit missionaries from New France in the 1600s. Every word I could not understand, which sounded like Wondinuk, and actually I went bother to spell it out, Ondenog. I found what it meant in the writings of Father Brebeuf, a brave Jesuit on the borders of everything back in the 1600s. And he said in paraphrase, you know, the most important element in the religion of these savages is what they call the Ondenog. It means the secret wish of the soul, especially is revealed in dreams. They believe that dreams show people what the soul wants and that the task of the community is to gather around the dreamer Listen to the dream, help the dreamer understand what the soul is asking for and take action. Otherwise, that person will sicken and their soul energy will leave them. So when this became clear to me, when I understood this, because I'd been called to a dreamer, and that's Zedzot, that's the Mohawk word for dreamer, who knew this stuff and lived it, I realized I'd been called to a way of understanding that probably all of our ancestors shared whatever language they spoke, whatever part of the globe they lived on, but which we largely forgot. I mean, it's there in some of the best depth psychology, of course. It's there. But it stated here with a clarity and, and a guidance of practice, which 
which is really stunning when you think about it. Just think about this. Suppose you can accept that your dreams might be showing you what the deepest part of you wants for you in your life, what the soul wants, what the, what the spirit wants, what the creative self wants in your life. It's showing you that. And it's giving you assignments. It's giving you a direction to follow, which will not simply be the direction of calculation and compromise for a little everyday mind. It will be the direction that is wished and intended by your larger, your greater self, your soul self wants this, and that other people are poised and prepared in the society that again values dreams to understand this, to gather around you, to help you find the resources, and open the doors necessary to serve the purposes of the soul. Wouldn't this be a beautiful way for communities to support each other in the flowering and the blossoming of the best potential of life? So that's one thing that I learned from that tradition. I had to study that tradition hard. I mean, I've spent years of reading, of reading the libraries. I have possibly the largest personal library of books relating to this period and this scene anywhere. So I'm a historian. I do my research. I lived and spoke with native speakers of both the Mohawk and the Huron-Wendat tradition. I uh, went to their re reservations, actually invited by them to give workshops on dreaming to help them bring back the dream ways of their ancestors. And that's at the core of it. The dreams show us the secret wishes of the soul. I would add to that that when you follow indigenous and ancient traditions where dreaming was important, there's another big thing to be said about the importance of dreaming in the understanding of those cultures which our ancestors shared, and it's this. Dreaming can get you through. Dreaming is about survival. Dreaming you scout out the possible future. You see challenges and opportunities ahead. Dreaming can pull you back from the brink of terrible mistakes. If your community listens to you, dreaming can save the community as well. Unfortunately, our community, our society has not been listening to dreams. But individuals in smaller groups can do it for themselves and those around them. We can do that. I know that. I couldn't be talking to you if I had not avoided probable death in road accidents three times because my dreams showed me what was likely to happen. I was able to clarify the information, apply it, and avoid those dates with death. So that's another thing from ancient and indigenous tradition. Dreaming is not just some new age you know, entertainment. It's about survival. It's part of our toolkit for survival. And the bigger story, well, this is another staying from the aborigines of my native country. The big stories are hunting the right people to tell them. That's the way I first heard it. Writers love that, or they're terrified by it. The big stories are hunting the right people to tell them, like predators in the bush, like sharks in the water. And maybe it's not just about telling the stories, though telling the stories is very important in our lives as in those of our ancestors, because the stories we tell or fail to tell ourselves and others really shape a life. Our lives are built on stories, and if we don't recognize we're living a story, we're probably living the wrong kind of story, one that binds us tight in old dysfunction, in old in defeat, in old failure, in old hatred, in old prejudice. So let's accept we are all living a story of some kind, and let's see if we can reach for the larger story. And once again, the larger story is looking for us. If the big stories are hunting the right people to live them, as well as the right people to tell them, then finding your big story is not such a difficult enterprise. You put yourself where your big story can find you. You know, if the tiger is looking for you, you know, and you want to find the tiger, not to kill it, but to interface with the tiger, well, then you tether yourself like a goat 
in the place where the tiger can find you, at the edge of the tame land and the wild land. That's what you do. In the edge of the tame land and the wild land, in this sense, the place where the big story can grab you, it's the edge of consciousness and reality that you enter and cross through dreaming and through the play of synchronicity and in those liminal states of consciousness. So it's not such a big deal. If you can just stop saying, I'm hunting my big story and say, no, I'm letting my big story hunt me. It will come through. It will reveal its shapes, its lineaments. And let's remember, as Joe Campbell used to say, you know, your dream is your private myth. Myths are collective dreams. Dreams are personal myths. So through your dreaming, you'll find that you interface and interweave with the great never-ending stories of humanity. One of the chapters of my new book is all about this, about how your big story conceives you and how that will change everything. And what is the story? Is it the story of Persephone? Is it the story of the Hindu goddess who couldn't stand a married life, so she cloned herself and left a sort of Indian Stepford wife version of herself at home while she ran and running around like a wild mare? Is that your story? Is your story that of Hermes, trickster, the one who can travel easily between the worlds? Is your story that of Odysseus, the wounded warrior who takes all those years to be healed in the realm of women before he can come home again? What is your story? So, you know, you might find as you look for your story that things resonate with you from folklore, mythology, and fairy tale. And then you might find that your dreams are giving you a further spin on that and opening aspects of those tales, whether they're familiar or not, that you haven't thought about. And then, with grace, you might have the grace of a bigger story that can give you the sense of drama and purpose to carry you through all the ups and downs of everyday life. That's what it's all about. That was beautiful. You say that most of the harm we do to ourselves and others is because we've forgotten who we are and what we're meant to become. Could you talk about that and how dreaming and imagination can help with that, both on an individual and collective level? I think, you know, what shamans call soul loss is at the root of so many things that are wrong in our lives and in our society. And the idea is very simple. The reality is very simple. I've never met a human being who's not suffered soul loss. You know, you suffer pain, you suffer trauma, you suffer abuse, suffer abuse. You suffer shame. You have to make a wrenching life choice. And part of you goes away because it doesn't want to be around. It doesn't like the choice you made. The world seems too cold and cruel. It goes away. For one reason or another, you know, you are now somewhat hollow. There's a hole in you. And what is going to fill that hole in you if it's not authentically you? Other things come in. I mean, you try and fill the hole with addiction. You drink too much. You do drugs. You do sugar. You do sex, you become a workaholic in order to sort of blur the feelings of emptiness. And But lots of people continue to go around essentially like husk people, like hollow people. And then strange things happen. Strange things happen psychically. I mean, things get, we can't understand. I don't think we can understand the craziness of our world in any period, like the mid-20th century, like recent history in the United States and Europe, with the rise of these dark forces again. I don't think we can understand any of this craziness sufficiently if we don't recognize there are psychic forces in play. And those psychic forces use and misdirect individuals who are not intact, individuals who are not whole, individuals who are sort of hollow drums for something else to beat in and beat upon. 
I think that is part of the problem. So, you know, if we don't have people who are somewhat whole-souled, whole-souled, somewhat full of themselves in a good sense, not the egoic sense, full of their potential, full of their possibility, who don't have some degree of soul-remembering, remembering the purpose of life, who don't do introspection, who have no inner compass working, who don't listen to their dreams, which restores our inner compass, then we are in profound trouble. You have someone who travels through life without self-awareness at all. You're in trouble. I mean, that person is dangerous. That person is dangerous to themselves and others. The danger might extend to that person becoming a sociopath, the absolute opposite of the empath, someone who doesn't understand themselves or others, someone who even perhaps in a sense is alien to humanity itself and its decency and its causes. We see how all of this is playing out in our world. And those of us with any degree of historical memory understand how it played out with Hitler and Stalin and all those terrible totalitarian movements of the 20th century. We are still threatened by all of that in our lives. And a key element in the threat is that too many people who are not themselves in a whole and human sense, who are hollow people, available to be vehicles, uh, forces that we don't want to see have influence over human lives, they've made themselves available for that kind of thing. Could you talk about some of the archetypal entities and elemental forces and gods from the mythic realms to help us understand what they are and how they've come to be and how we can work with them in in healthy, practical ways? Well, I write about gods. I like talking about gods and particularly goddesses. I will use the word archetype, which you'll popularized as long as we remember it's not a static frame. Jung always was seeking new vocabulary to describe things. He didn't invent the word archetype, as I say, but he popularized it. And he, he and the best of his thinking and his ever-evolving thought, saw the archetype as a sort of dynamic constellation of energies. It was you know, not static. It's not a card to be pulled from the deck. It's a bundle of energies larger than the human scale whose eruption into a life can be devastating or empowering, depending on how you handle it. You know, the gods and the other names uh, that we give to elemental forces, spirit forces, powers beyond human life, powers beyond the physical, are essentially pictures, contact pictures is an old word for them, that we humans have placed on things that are initially beyond human understanding as well as beyond human control. Let me put this in a context of understanding by telling a story. It's a story I borrowed from Louis Bird, who's a, a swampy Cree, swampy Cree, a storyteller from Canada, a wonderful indigenous storyteller. He tells a story about how the shamans dreamed the Thunderbirds into being. Now, I don't really have Thunderbirds in Vermont, but they're well known around the Great Lakes and in Canada. And he tells the story of how thunder and lightning were awesome forces to humans. They were terrified, and they understood they had no power against these awesome forces. So the shamans, in his telling, got together, and they decided to dream a form by which humans could perceive and interact and maybe negotiate with these inchoate chaotic forces or at least, you know, make them a little bit easier to recognize and not safe, not domestic, but the thunderbird is easier to cope with than a raw, inchoate, immense force of nature. So the shamans in his telling dreamed the thunderbirds into being. I think it's like that 
with the gods and goddesses. They are so real, but the forms that they take are the result of a constant interaction between forces beyond the human ability to perceive and imagine. So we grow our gods, we grow our goddesses. I mean, in ancient Mesopotamian cultures like the Hittite culture, it's understood that gods can disappear, gods can die, they can become evanescent, you know, they can become decadent and eventually disappear because humans cease to believe them, cease to give them form, and no longer bother with imagining them in a certain way. The truth of the matter is there are powers beyond the human range which are in contact reach of humans. We name them, we find pictures for them, we find ways of talking to them, are we simply talking to a larger aspect of ourselves? Well, I think it goes beyond that. I think it's transpersonal as well as personal. However, we need to explore the vocabulary and the range of contact pictures that work for us. And if you find that you are not getting the help and support and succor that you need in your life, try a different form, try a different version. You also talk about taking dreams more literally and the events of waking life more symbolically. Yeah. I mean, I find symbolism in everywhere. Even, you know, a bit of trash left on the sidewalk after garbage collection, you know, on a Tuesday morning where I live. But I noticed that lots of people who are willing to work with dreams and, in fact, enthusiastic about dream work miss the mark in talking about a dream because they go symbolic right away. What is water? Is water emotion? What does that person represent? What aspect of you does that other person represent? Or the horse? Or the bull? Or the cat? Well, that's all very well. However, there are three broad categories of dreams. We're not talking about whether you're lucid dreaming or sleep dreaming. We're just the dreams in general. There are literalistic or realistic dreams which show you some version of the world around you that is fairly close to what is going on or what could go on in the future. Dreams in which you see the possible future, you see across time and space. So let's say the literalistic, realistic dreams, just so dreams, Straight-up dreams, they're called in Hawaiian, not referring to alcohol, but towards the quality of a dream that doesn't require interpretation because it's straight-up, the straight shot. You get a glimpse of this world now or in the future or at a distance. Then there are the symbolic dreams, and that's where most of the time and energy of dream work is vested, which is fine. And then there are the dreams that are experiences of other realities, and these, for me, are actually the most interesting. And I look at most of my dreams, as experience that happened somewhere else. It might be near or far to my current life. Last night, I'm in the Midwest. I'm in the Midwest airport. A strange game is being played at a coffee stand at the Midwest airport. I'm with people I don't recognize in ordinary life. It's not a terribly interesting dream, but, you know, I'm out and about. I'm at an airport. I'm doing things that I haven't been doing in waking life for some months, and that's nice. You know, and the night before, I'm in a what I called a, a scene of Scandinavian blood sports in which giants and characters out of the Eddas and the sagas, Scandinavian mythology are preparing a battle, and I'm right in the scene. And that's thrilling. That's somewhere else. And I come back and I don't say, well, what symbolically does this mean and what aspect of me is the female goddess and female giantess brandishing the weapons? My first thought is, okay, this is just, so I was there, I did that. Who was I in the dream? Was I my present self? Probably not. Was I someone else? What is the relationship of that someone else to me? And I'm in another realm, and, and I'm surrounded by people who are dead in this world. And they're alive. I'm learning about how, how they live and what lifestyle options they're considering. 
I'm there. I mean, I'm, I traveled to that other world. I mean, dream work, by the way, is the best preparation for dying because in dreams you get out of your familiar fields, you know, you go somewhere else. So these two vast categories of dream experience, the literalistic dream in which you are somewhere in this world or close to this world across time and space where you get out and about, free from your body and brain, and the experience of another reality, the alternate realities, parallel realities kind of dream, these are vastly interesting. So just to go symbolic about dreams is not enough. Now, symbolism is important because symbols take us from what we think we know to what we do not yet know. And therefore, in dreams and through synchronous in the world around us, the greater powers, the dream producers are going to give us symbols to help us educate and figure things out for ourselves and go beyond what we already know. However, for the reasons I've just given, I'll say it again in one of my personal mantras that I coined, we must take dreams more literally and waking life more symbolically. My guest is Robert Moss. He's the creator of Active Dreaming, a synthesis of modern psychology and shamanism. He's a prolific writer and leads workshops on dreaming, creativity, and shamanism all over the world. And his latest book that we're talking about is Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desires Through 12 Secrets of the Imagination. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. To take this even further, you say that night dreams are an essential corrective to the delusions of the day. Yeah, I mean, Dostoevsky wrote a whole novel about that, right? Crime and Punishment, in which the self-deceiving young man who thinks he has a right, a nihilist right to do anything, including killing the old woman for her money, is getting a corrective every night in his dreams about how his daytime delusions are completely wrong, but he doesn't listen to the dreams and the tragedy and the murder unfolds. It's like that. I mean, part of the function of dreams is that dreams are a voice of conscience. You go back to Plutarch, the great biographer and philosopher and priest of Apollo, from whom Shakespeare got the idea for all his Greco-Roman plays. Plutarch, in his biographies of ancient characters, showed again and again and again how tyrants and bad people were haunted by terrifying dreams, advises them basically to give up their bad ways and clean up their act, and usually they failed to do that. They were dragged out screaming. So dreams are a voice of conscience. They are a way that a deeper, wiser self tries to make us correct our ways. And I am suspicious of anyone who deliberately shuts out dreams. Now, I'm sympathetic to the many people in our society who've been suffering a dream drought because they haven't been encouraged to dream. I mean, it started in childhood because parents were annoyed when they shouted in the night and said, just dream, go back to sleep. But so many people in our society have not been remembering or attending to dreams. They have my sympathy. There are ways of bringing back dreams, and one of the ways to bring them back is just to start keeping a journal and write down your odd thoughts and images, not only dreams, but impressions from the day, and do that. And then you're saying to your dream producers, here I am, I'm paying attention, I'm writing things down. It starts that way. But closing the door on your dreams because you don't want any introspection, you don't want to look at yourself, you don't want to know yourself, that is terrifying. And it goes with the tendency of terrible people in our society not to look inside, not to look at themselves, not to look at the spring of their actions or motives because they don't like what they will see there. And shutting out dreams deliberately goes with refusing to practice self-awareness, refusing the great Greek injunction, Gnothi Sir Alton, know thyself. 
Could you talk about the ancient art of Polynesian navigation and how it relates to all of this? Well, let me give the story its pacing and its style, because, you know, one of the great gifts of learning to share dreams the way that I teach people to share dreams is we all get better at telling our stories. And, you know, there's great power in being able to communicate your story and have it heard. So let me tell the story. Many years ago, I was driving the crazy road to Hana on the island of Maui. I'm by myself. It's a crazy road. Anybody who's been on that road knows what I'm talking about. It goes through hairpin bends. It's one lane a lot of the time with the walls of a stone bridge around it. There's a huge truck in the middle of the road coming straight at you, that kind of a road. So, you know, I'm doing my best, and I've turned on the radio, and I get a British voice, so I assume it's the BBC, and it's telling the story of how a group of sailors and designers some years ago built a replica of one of the big ocean-going canoes that brought the Polynesians across the Pacific Ocean from Tahiti to settle the islands of Hawaii. And their purpose in building this huge replica of an ancient ocean-going canoe using the same materials was to see how it is possible to get across thousands of miles of ocean without maps, without compasses, without instruments. So they're planning to do it the ancient way. They're planning to do it with no modern accoutrements, no instruments, no charts, no compass, nothing. Just the stars, the wind, and the waves, and their own instincts. But, you know, what do they need to learn in order to be able to replicate the voyage going the other way from Hawaii to Tahiti, the island of their origin? Well, they look for an old-time Polynesian master navigator who is called a wayfinder or a waymaker. And they find such a person in Melanesia in the South Pacific. And he's been raised with the water. His family would put him in a tidal pool right next to the ocean before he'd walk to feel the ocean, to become familiar with it. I mean, he was trained to read the waves. He was trained to read the stars. He was trained to follow the fish and the birds, all of that. So this is the knowledge he can impart to the crew of the Hawaiian boat, which took the Hawaiian name of the Star Arcturus, which is very important to Hawaiians. And so he gives them their classes in navigation the old way. Then we reach the master class. He takes them up on a point of land on the island of Oahu, makes them spin around until they're rather dizzy with their eyes closed. And then he says, now turn until you're pointing in the direction of your destination, in the direction of the island of Tahiti. So they do that, and when he's more or less satisfied that they're pointing the right way, he says, now go there, be there, be on the island that is your destination. Be there with all of your senses, taste it, touch it, feel it, smell it. goes on like this for quite a while. He says, okay, now you're coming back. Hold the vision in your mind. Hold the vision in your senses so you do not become lost. So I'm listening to this story, which I'm paraphrasing, of course. It's not word for word, but it's what I heard and received. And I'm thinking, well, we've got a whole plan for life here, haven't we? Let us find our destination. Let's go to the heart. Let's go to the dreams, the secret wishes of the soul. Let's go to the heart's desire. Let's find our heart's desire. Let's start there, not the grocery shopping list of the ego. But let's get a sense of what we truly desire. Let's go to the heart center for that. And then let's imagine that we are embarking on a voyage, and we are going to travel across an uncharted ocean of this world, in this world, to the island of our heart's desire. And we are going to go there and we are going to feel and sense and taste and touch ourselves, enjoying the fulfillment of things we deeply, deeply desire. And we're going to be there. 
We're not going to worry necessarily about how far into the future this is, so we could set a time frame. We could say, I want to go three years into the future. We could simply say, I want to go to a place where I am enjoying the manifestation of what I truly desire. And then a vision begins to grow. You know, it might start with a sound, sound of the waves, sound of a song, sound of a lover's breath. It might begin with smell. It might deepen with a sense of touch, the sun on your face, the wind in your hair, and so on. And you grow the vision, strong and deep and rich. And then you come back, and then you record what you have felt and seen, and you make a talisman. You find an object which can hold the vision in your senses, something you can carry or look at. It might be a picture. It might be something you eat or drink. It might be a piece of music. It might be an article of clothing. You find something which can hold for you the power of the vision you've begun to grow. And then as you think about this, then you can, of course, take time to say, okay, I saw such and such and such and such and such and such. I know this is what I want. I think the location is such and such a place. What is in the scene that I don't have yet? What is in this scene that I need to discard? What is missing from this scene that needs to be missing because it's holding me back? You ask yourself questions like that, and then you say, okay, what are the steps or challenges I need to deal with in order to get from here to this vision of possibility, and what do I do about that? So I wrote a chapter about this, and it takes the idea that there is a way of wayfinding or waymaking that got the Polynesian navigators across thousands of miles of uncharted ocean, which can get you maybe, 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 from where you are to where your heart and soul would like you to be, and it requires you to grow a vision, inhabit that vision, taste, touch, feel that vision, hold it so strongly that it wants to take root in the world and then to take some practical action to get from where you are now to where you might be. That's a wonderful way to end. My guest has been Robert Moss. He's the creator of Active Dreaming, a synthesis of modern psychology and shamanism. He's a prolific writer and leads workshops on dreaming, creativity, and shamanism all over the world. And his latest book that we've been talking about is Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desires Through the Twelve Secrets of the Imagination. Robert Moss, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Great pleasure, Tony. May we just add that my website is mossdreams.com, and one thing you can find there is the new online course, online video course that I'm launching, Dream Journeys Beyond the Veil. That might appeal to some of you. Well, again, thank you so much. May you grow big dreams, and may they manifest in this world.
dope beats But now I step it up and move beyond these tall weeds I'm weeded as I speak and the vibe is so deep They told me drive slow so I grind at a creep The motion is forward, I'm alive and I breathe I see and I hear and I fly in my sleep The flight to the sound that we use to count sheep There is no insomnia, it climbs right inside of your bed between sheets You blink twice and then you start to doze off Embracing this moment in time, that pillow's so soft Usually a victim of the turn tour Sleep is priceless and his dreams coming at no cost The hours spent before his preparation To focus on the answers you seek through meditation The location, a gift of the ancients Egyptian dream temples to reach a destination Patiently searching for signs as you drift through the unknown corners of the mind You'll find out through practice and discipline This every night routine is more than significant Dreams run in 90 minute intervals With each new layer they become more visual But the control is minimal Most of the time it's like watching a video In first person you become more certain Aware of your surroundings almost picture Perfect, perfect Relax and observe it This heavenly experience is peaked to its furthest Bursting with energy and light The colors get bright You're the king of the night Take flight, flight When you eat your memory, 
choose the right dip. Bad moods make bad memories taste really bad. But take an old, terrible tasting memory, dip it in a good mood, and you'll be amazed. Yummy, yummy. Will you remember? Huh? story, a submarine story. I was on the subliminal, and we were being attacked by a giant octopus. Big tentacles wrapped around us. Oh, no! The crew was in a panic. The octopus was trying to eat us. It opened its big mouth and was stuffing us in like a submarine sandwich. Do they have tongues? Tongues, yes. Haven't you ever seen an octopus take its tentacles and stretch its mouth and stick out its long purple tongue and go, na 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 No. Yes. Yes. What did you do? I said, up, periscope. I, I, captain. I looked into the periscope and there, looking back at me, was this big, milky white bloodshot eye of the octopus. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I looked deep into its eye and it looked deep into my eye. So I looked deeper into its eye and it looked deeper into my eye. What did you see? I saw... Fear. 
Yes. Beer? Yes. Oh, no. Yes, and I peered deeper, and it peered deeper, until its eye became as big as the moon. Big as the moon? No. Yes, the eye was like nothing you've ever seen before. It was very alien-looking. Really? Mm-hmm. And then that big octopus eye came even closer and closer until it pressed into my periscope. <gasps> no. Yes. And its blood vessels were as big as the canals on Mars. Oh. Yes. There are canals on Mars? Yes. No. Yes. The canals on Mars are hundreds of miles wide and thousands of feet deep. No. Yes. And I dove into the canal and swam way down to the bottom. No. Yes. And I saw what looked like... A banana. A banana? Yes. No. Yes, with a propeller. A banana with a... Ba- no. Yes, and I reached out and grabbed it, and I squeezed it, and a periscope popped up and looked at me. <gasps> yes, and I put my eye right up against that periscope, and I saw... Tiny bloodshot eye looking back. No. Yes, and it was a very alien eye. Yes, but it looked delicious, so I ate it. The eye? Yes, and the submarine. You? No. Yes. Ate it? Mm-hmm. What happened? At the same moment, the octopus ate me. No. Yes. And that was the end. No. Yes, the end. The end of the story? The end of the story of the subliminal. No. Yes. Is there a moral? No. No? It's immoral. But? They do it to you anyway. I went down to Galloway's and had a burger. I'm wearing a checkered shirt and a Yankees cap. I sit at the bar. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bart. The usual? Yeah, the usual. Behind the bar, the whole wall is a mirror, so I got a good view of the place. I notice a guy sitting back against the far wall. He looks familiar. In fact, he looks a lot like me, but a better class of me. He looks like an Italian film director. I'm thinking, with the right wardrobe, I could look like that. About then, a very attractive and stylish chick slips into the chair beside him. The chick, she looks bored. Bored and beautiful. I'm watching all this reflected in the mirror. So I turn around to get a better look at her. She's sitting there, but she's alone. The guy's gone. I slip off the bar stool and walk over. 
She looks up and smiles. There's a guy over there. He's been watching us. What guy? He's wearing a checkered shirt and a baseball cap. Oh, yeah? His back is to us, but I saw his face in the mirror. I swear, he looks like you. No. Well, maybe a seedier version. At first, I think she's playing with me. But I turn around, and there's a guy with a checkered shirt sitting at the bar with his back to us. That's him. A thought is now entering my mind. Leave with her. Do it now. Maybe it's your doppelganger. My what? Why don't you go say hello? I gotta admit it's tempting. So I start for the bar. Don't forget me. So I turn around and say, Baby, don't you worry. But then when I turn back, the bar stool's empty. Hey, Joe. Wasn't there a guy sitting here? Yeah? You? No. Some guy who looks like me. Yeah, that's what I said. I look in the mirror. She's still there. Here you go. What's this? It's what you asked for. Oh. It's not what I drink, but if my double ordered it, I figure he's got good taste, so... Hmm. Good. I look in the mirror. I don't see her. I turn around. She's gone. I don't know how many times I've gone back to Galloway's. I sit at the bar, looking at the mirror, watching me, watching everybody else. Life passes, but it's all reflection. You are falling deeper into the color of a dream.
it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again or would like to share it with somebody, you can find this show and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com/wgdr. That's soundcloud.com/wgdr. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Catch me on board.